Okay, guys, good morning. How are y'all? All right, good. You'll see, uh, if you'll open up your brochure, you'll see all the things that we're selling. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all of our advertisements. Um, my name's Nick. I am the uh, lead pastor here, and uh, happy to bring you uh, God's Word. Um, typical rhythm is about three times or so a month. Uh, you'll see me up here, and then I also like to give other guys a chance and uh, try to raise up other people to handle God's Word and, and preach it. Um, so uh, this morning, you got me, uh, and I'm happy to be here. Let me get us right in. Um, we're going to be in Luke's Gospel. Uh, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Um, it's our gift to you if you don't own one or you know someone you want to give it to. I said last week you might want to consider these stocking stuffers for your kids paid by Mercy Hill. You just keep a Bible, put it in uh, the stocking, uh, and you're, you're already getting ready for Christmas. Um, but we're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. Verses 7 through 10 is where we're going to be. Uh, one of the things that's awesome about going through uh, God's word verse by verse or uh, rather than just kind of dipping in here or there um, topically as the spirit moves me. Uh, one of the things that's uh, great about going kind of verse by verse like we're doing now through the gospel of Luke is you hit some stuff along the way that's that's not so fun. But when you spend time in it, when you let really the word penetrate, when you sit under the authority of it, you let God speak, you find out at the end of it that he really was loving you well in and through it. Today, this morning is one of those texts that's going to kind of cut against the grain of our culture and your flesh. It's not going to sound very nice at first. You may be mad at me for a moment here or there, but I'm telling you by the end, I hope you'll see Jesus is loving us well when he says these things that we're about to read. So let's read uh, Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Uh, I'll pray, and then we will uh, dive in. Here's verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. God, that is the spirit that I want to have. The spirit of, of humility. A sense that I don't belong in your presence. <laughs> I don't belong uh, around your table. Even though we know in the gospel because of Christ we're invited there. We're welcomed there. God, I pray that these words would settle in on us this morning. And I pray that our sense of ego and entitlement and, and all the sort of stuff that, that we tend to kind of soak in in our culture would be pushed against, even done away with. 
I pray you'd clear the fog. The spirit of this age. And you'd help us to see God. And our place in your universe, your world as your creatures and your servants. It's not about us. So God, I pray you would come, you'd use me just a broken instrument. Use me to communicate your eternal truths and gospel to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me quickly catch us up to speed a little bit uh, because you may have noticed on the handout that you have uh, in front of you so there in your bulletin um, that the title of today's message is Increase Our Faith Part 3. Now, I'm not going to review parts one and two, but just in case you're curious, why is this a part three of increase uh, our faith? I, I wanted to remind us that I've been kind of for now a few weeks uh, hanging my thoughts or, or, or ordering my thoughts, if you will, underneath the banner that was raised back up in Luke 17, verse five, where the apostles hearing this call to radical forgiveness cry out, increase our faith. And one of the things that I've brought out, and hopefully you are now a little bit convinced of, is that I really think that the idea of faith in general here is what kind of holds together the flow of thought in verses 1 through 10, uh, largely here in Luke 17. That this idea of what faith is and what it affects and the sort of things that come out of faith are, are really what's in view. And that's why that's the banner over top of these three sermons. But now, this morning... We move into verses 7 through 10 in particular. Um, in the first sermon, we looked at the nature of faith uh, and the gift of faith. Uh, when we talked about the nature of faith, I said, essentially, in its fullest expression, faith is kind of resting in, trusting, personally just falling upon Jesus Christ. God, the gospel, his word. It's this sort of trust, this personal trust in him. That's the nature of faith. We talked about the gift of faith and the idea that faith ultimately is a gift of God's regenerating uh, spirit and grace. He, he opens up our eyes. He, he softens our hearts. He, he, he basically gives us the ability to see in him not just something boring and lame and ah, uh, but all of a sudden there came a time in yours and my life where God, by mercy, woke you up and you all of a sudden in the preaching of the gospel you saw you saw beauty you saw what you needed you saw what you've always been looking for you saw hope the gift of faith was given so we saw the nature of faith the gift of faith and then last time in uh, part two we looked at the effect of faith namely what does faith 
effect in a person's life? What does it look like as it's kind of working out? What's some of the stuff that it accomplishes? And that's where we talked about the idea of the mustard seed of faith moving or uprooting the mulberry tree, as Jesus uh, mentions in verse 6. And I, I, I talked about how faith and its effect really ultimately moves towards this idea of the deeper miracle of love and forgiveness and other things, but also uh, the more surface miracles of, of answered prayer and healings and other things. And so there is a spectacular, miraculous uh, sort of effect that faith has in the lives of believers. Nature of faith, gift of faith, effective faith. Now this morning. In part three, what we're going to look at in particular as we come to verses seven through ten is this idea of the humility of faith, the humility of faith. Now, I want to before I dive into the text proper in these four verses, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this progression and the connection between faith and humility for a moment, because it is a, a bigger subject. And hopefully this will kind of set us up for our time in the text itself. But as I thought about the progression in Luke 17, uh, I feel like logically it does make a lot of sense to move from as you're kind of going through this idea of faith to the idea of humility. So think with me for a moment. If faith really is uh, turning away from myself towards another and fully trusting in resting in him. If faith really is a gift whereby God opens up my eyes and softens my heart and heart. So I embrace him fully. If faith really uh, is sort of the this sort of clinging on to the power and the word of another so that then by that strength, by his strength, I can produce these effects and do these uh, fantastic feats within the Christian life. If that's what faith is. Well, wouldn't you say the sort of trajectory of that logic should lead the person who is a man or woman of faith to also be a person of great, deep humility? That's the, the flow. That's what I see happening here. The whole thing isn't about me. And because it's not about me, because it's his work in me and it's me resting in him and his power coming through me. At the end of the day, it's not me. It's him. And there's a humility and a brokenness and, a, and, a, and an unworthiness sort of thing that should mark the Christian. We just go, wow, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. What an amazing deal. It didn't come from me. It came from a merciful God. So the logic, I think, makes sense. And here is why we see this connection made all over the scriptures between faith and humility. Let me just give you a few of these texts for you to consider. I want you to see it. I read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, I think back in the first sermon in this little mini-series. But look at it now through this lens. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Faith, grace, this gift, he's doing it. Therefore, no room for boasting in this man's life. 
If there is boasting, if there is arrogance, it's coming in from left field. It is not naturally flowing from this stream we call the gospel. That stream leads me to humility. The flesh gets in and does some stuff, and we'll look at that. But the natural trajectory should lead me to no boasting. Just humility, praise, and joy. Boasting in Him, no doubt. Not in myself. Romans 3, 27, Paul says something similar here, referencing the gospel and the work of Christ for us on the cross. He comes out and he says this, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. In other words, because your salvation is by grace through faith, there is no room for boasting. Humility and faith, they always go together. I'll give you one last example on this point. I wonder if you remember the story in Matthew 15, 21 through 28 of this Gentile woman who has this daughter who's been oppressed by demons and she hears Jesus is in town or whatever and she's coming to him and she's going, please do something. And Jesus, in this moment, I mean, he pushes back on her with something that we would go, my God, if I said this to you, you should slap me, okay? But he's Jesus, so he gets away with it. But he knows what he's doing. I want you to hear this. When she's asking, crying out for help. Now, remember, she's a Gentile, not a Jew. And he says this. He says um, in verse 26, Matthew 15. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, you and I hear that. What did you just say to me? The ego rises, the, the, the fury rises. What you, were you calling me a dog? Who are you to say that to me? Right? That's the sort of response we would have. That's not her response. What does she say? This is verse 27. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And now here's the point. Jesus hears that. And this is what he says. He says, oh, Woman, great is your humility. Yes, but he doesn't say that. He says, great is your faith. Wow. She kept pestering him, kept bugging. The dogs get the crumbs. I want the crumbs. Right? Great is your faith. Humility. The sort of humility that just gets you on the floor at Jesus' feet. Goes hand in hand with faith. They're connected. They're connected. It's a package deal, you could say. Yet sadly, what we find is that though faith and humility ought always to be a package deal, come together, and you truly can't have one if you don't have the other, we at times try to sever this connection. And you'll see this. We will try to sever this connection. You'll see it in your own life, and you probably see it more clearly in the lives of others. You've got those ministers who, 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 who maybe do things in, uh, by faith, and God has worked amazing things in their lives, and somewhere along the way, they start to take credit for it. 
They start to go, ah, okay, yeah, maybe that was God, maybe so, but maybe God's doing this in and through me because of my pedigree, because of my eloquence, because of my resume, and that's why this is happening. Or maybe they just simply discard that altogether and say, but this is me, I'm doing this. We start to take credit. We sever the connection between faith and humility. And this is why... Um, again, I think the connection, the progression of logic in Luke 17 is so important. See, Jesus isn't just speaking more positively here, saying, okay, so the nature of faith is this, the gift of faith is that, the effect of faith is that, therefore you should also be humble. I think he's also aware that we're going to be prone to, 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 to falter on this point. I think there's also a warning built within. So as you're perhaps by faith doing mulberry kind of moving miracles, right? Mulberry tree moving miracles and people are seeing and going, wow, this is awesome. Amazing. That guy, you know, preaches like that. That guy prays and it's answered. Whoa, this is incredible. As that starts to happen, the ego, the, the severing faith to humility, it can get lost. And so... There's also this more warning sort of negative aspect to this that I think he's trying to make sure we're in the clear that even as he does great things in and through us, it is him. And that's why we will see uh, uh, all over the scriptures as well, these sort of warnings not to lose this connection. So I gave you there maybe three texts that kind of dealt more with the positive connection. I want to I want to show you a few of these warnings that saying don't. Don't lose the connection here. Don't go faith and then sever. Hey, it was me. No, faith leads to humility or you're in trouble. Romans eleven twenty, Paul warns the Gentile believers of um, what we see kind of going down in Israel's story. He tells them about what happened with Israel and he's warning them. Lest the same thing happen. He says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. But fear. The idea is, listen, we know Israel's story somewhere along the way. I mean, in the beginning, they were helpless and lost. And we're just in chains in Egypt and all this. And we can't do anything. We need you somewhere along the way. The thought occurred to them, hey, maybe we were chosen because we're awesome. Maybe God's doing this work because we're great. And they fell away. And he said, cut them off. And so Paul is warning the Gentiles, listen, you're there by faith. Don't get proud in your position, lest the same sort of thing happen to you. Faith needs to stay connected to humility. Or consider his words in Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And later he says in verse 16, kind of comes out and says, never be wise in your own sight. So he knows the temptation we have. That as there are certain gifts or as we've been given certain things from God, we're going to take pride in it. He says, listen, that was all a gift to you from God. Never be wise in your own sight. Be wise, absolutely. Be wise, certainly. But know from whom, know where that wisdom came from. Right? Know that it's a gift to you from God and it's in his word. And don't start thinking that it just originates in you because you're so great. You got a 4.0 GPA or whatever on your SATs. No. It's God's work in your life. Humility. 
Paul is perhaps most forceful on this point with the Corinthian church. Um, you remember, perhaps, the Corinthians, if you've read 1 Corinthians, they, they were prone to kind of pursue the spiritual manifestations, the mulberry tree uprooting kind of stuff. Yes, and when it happens, it would seem that they would kind of think, man, it, it happened because we are special, because I have something going on. And God finally recognized it, got with the program, and now there's great things going. Paul's going to push back on that in a firm way here, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We're going to be prone to sever that connection between faith and humility. And there's all these warnings in the scriptures against that. The story of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra might be interesting to think about here because they represent a more positive uh, 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 kind of pushback on this temptation. So there's this guy there who has been lame in his feet from birth and uh, the apostle Paul heals him. He, he, he looks down at the brother, says, get up. And the guy gets up. Now, the people in the town, these Gentile pagan folks who have many gods and all this stuff, they see this going on and they go, oh, my goodness. This is what they say. This is uh, Acts 14, 11. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. That's Zeus and that's Hermes. They're here. These are gods. In other words, man, they saw the flashy effects of, of, of a life lived by faith in, uh, in, in, in Christ and his spirit moving through. And they said, well, you are a god as far as we can tell. It's the gods coming to us in the likeness of men. And they start to prep and get ready to call the priests. Let's offer sacrifices to these guys because they are that amazing. And you got to know, Paul and Barnabas, they are men just like you and I, made of the same kind of stuff. I mean, you might go, I would never permit sacrifices to me. That's so weird. That's crazy. Yeah, sure. But think about it. Um, you might say, I'd never want people worshiping me. Yeah, sure. But think about it for a moment. When you post something to Facebook, your new dress or your Halloween costume or whatever it was, does it not feel good when all the people come in and like, 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 like? And does it not feel kind of bad when nobody notices? Doesn't it feel good when the crowds kind of come around and go, hey, well, this is great. Praise, adoration, respect, worship, perhaps. There's that temptation there. To sever the connection between faith and humility. But these guys know the stuff of Luke 17. So here's their response. They see all this nonsense going down in the crowds around them. And they tore their garments, we're told in verse 14 of, of, um, of Acts uh, 14. They tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out. Now listen here. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. In other words, they don't say, well, that looks nice. Give me more. Give me a lamb and a ram and a woo. Come on, sing your praise. They say, what are you doing? We're made of the same stuff you are. We're men just like you. We're nobodies, but we've come to tell you about the only somebody that really matters. He's the one by whom we do these things. 
That's to lead you to him. That's why we're here. The gospel of grace. So they get it. But sadly, a lot of us don't. And that's why we need Luke 17 verses 7 through 10. Jesus is coming in to help kind of course correct, to keep us on track, to put us in our place within his universe, his his world, his plan of redemption. And I'm sorry, newsflash, you're not the center of it. Okay, we're not the center of it. So with this connection between faith and humility now made clear in our minds, I think we're ready to kind of proceed in our consideration of these four verses bit by bit. I'm going to divide my my thoughts under two headings here. Uh, The first would be what I deserve. And the second would be what I receive. What I deserve, what I receive. Let's dive in then. So first, what I deserve Um, let me at least set this point up by speaking into our context here in our culture a little bit. Uh, I don't think any of you would disagree with me that we are a culture that, especially here in America, that likes to talk about what we deserve. We, we like discussions. We'll bring it up, what we deserve. We, we we're ready to talk about it because we have this inflated, mistaken sense that we deserve a lot more than we really have. Like if, you know... If this is going wrong, I don't deserve that. If I put in extra hours at, at, at work, think about it. If I put in extra hours at work, I deserve this vacation. If, if I, you know, have been on this strict diet for weeks now, I deserve this bowl of Marianne's ice cream. That's probably my favorite. You ever tried it? Santa Cruz is so good. If, if, if I, you know, I'm in this relationship and I've been pouring out a lot and then they don't reciprocate, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. If I've been watching crazy kids all day long, I deserve this glass of wine and quiet time. You don't bug me. Right? That's how we feel. That's the sort of uh, culture that we live in. I'd call it an, an ethos, if you will, of entitlement. I saw another example of this just in my Facebook feed uh, scrolling this past week. And I wanted to show you this is a guy. I actually think the guy is pretty legitimate um, as far as an author goes. But he's promoting his book on productivity and leadership. And here's what he writes. I want you to see how this is playing out. Um, Ever feel stuck doing work you should hand off? I'm like, yes, yes. Want to make progress on your most important priorities, but tiny tasks, reminders, and work you hate doing crowd your schedule? Yes! I'm folding bulletins right now. Don't waste time trying to break through these productivity roadblocks on your own. Take the easy route and get a systematic blueprint for getting the help you deserve. In my new book, I'll be revealing my process for finding training and leveraging, hear this, the executive assistant your busy life deserves. Now, we just read that and a lot of us wouldn't even know. I I sat there and go, deserve? Well, okay, let me back up. Because I don't want to see it as a pastor first. I want to see it as a human being in this culture. And the bottom line is, is you hear that and you go, ooh, he has a point. My life is busy. I am important. I do have a lot going on, and I, I, I do deserve an executive assistant. Let me get that book. You see, he's having to pander 
to our sense of entitlement, our sense of self-centeredness. Because we all have this idea that we deserve more. And so he's communicating into that because it will sell. Now, I, 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 again, like I said, I, li- I like the author. I may even, but it's probably a good book. But you can kind of see this ethos of entitlement that we live in. And the way that we try to kind of get people in is to speak into that. Because we know it's there. Yeah, I do deserve that. Now, it sounds nice, but it has no basis in reality. And they sell you some books, but it has no basis in reality. Now, let me be clear on something. I am not saying uh, here I'm, I'm, that there's no equity or justice in the horizontal plane in relationships between one another in society. And things. Let me just be clear on that. Uh, I do think that we ought to look at, say, the oppressed and say, in one sense, they don't deserve that. Or when we bring justice down through our system or whatever, hey, they deserve that crime. I understand there is one way of talking about deserve that is appropriate. We want to stand up for injustice and other things. But I'm just simply saying when we kind of blow this out into a, a, a broader discussion that we're having between God and the sense that we have about life in general of what we deserve, we're in big trouble. We start talking to God about what we deserve. And let me just tell you, it never ends well for us. It never goes well. If we really want to press in, God, here's what, why aren't you doing? You should be answering. You should be doing. I don't deserve this. God, in a loving way, We'll probably say, okay, do you really want to talk about what you deserve? You really want to go here with me? Okay, let's let's talk about it. You think you deserve an executive assistant. You think you deserve a vacation. You think you deserve a bowl of your favorite ice cream. I'm telling you, you deserve hell. I'm telling you that for your sin and self-centeredness and rebellion against not just me, but everyone else, it's all about you. That for this, you deserve judgment. You want to talk about what you deserve? Let's go to Romans 6.23, where I tell you specifically the wages of sin. In other words, what you deserve, what you earned, what you should get. The wages of sin is death. Just because I pour out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace does not mean you deserve it. But that's going to come a little later. Now, putting something like what I just said there into your little promo ad on Facebook is not going to sell you very many books, but it is the truth. And Jesus is directing us towards this reality because he loves us. He wants to help us. He's coming at that now in our text full force. We do some good stuff. We do some mighty deeds. We read our Bible. We serve and we start to expect we deserve approval. We deserve appreciation. We deserve recognition. We deserve praise. We deserve some accolades. Come on. Where are they? Not just from one another, but from God. And he's trying to speak into that 
now with this, what I'd call maybe like a quasi-parable. It's not technically probably a parable here, but uh, it sort of works in the same way. Verses 7 through 9, he tells this parable. And he's trying to get at this point with his disciples. You're going to do some awesome things. There are going to be great stuff that comes. Don't think that it's from you. Don't think that it earns you anything. Let's talk about the, the sort of perspective I want you to have. He uses um, a common experience, uh, common practice in his day in relational dealings between masters and servants uh, to tell this story here. And with these three verses, it seems to me he's really coming at two, uh, asking two basic questions. And they're going to sting a little bit, but let me give them to you. Question number one, does the servant deserve his master's service. Does the servant deserve his master's service? Look at verse seven again with me. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. So, Just to make sure you see clearly what's happening here. You have a a servant of a master who is out in the field working hard, working faithfully. He, whether he's tending to the soil or he's tending to the sheep, he is doing a good job. It's been a long day. He comes in tired. All of us would look at that and go, man, this guy deserves some rest. Kick your feet up. Take a break. (laughs) Watch some TV. There's some good stuff on Netflix they just released. Relax. Right? That's how we would kind of think. But Jesus goes on to answer his own question here in the verses that in the verse that follows in verse eight. That's kind of a rhetorical question. He says, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? This is the master talking to the servant now. Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Did you hear what he said? He said, listen, will the master say to the servant after he worked hard in the field, hey, let's get you some food. Let's pad you. Let's get your TV on so you can rest or whatever. And he says, "Uh, I'm sorry. He doesn't even say I'm sorry. He said, "Um, where's dinner? Get dinner ready, and when you have served me, then we can talk about your needs. Then we can talk about uh, you getting your food. In our culture of labor unions and whatnot, we would be outraged by this, right? We would say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Somebody's got to stand up. And again, horizontally, yes, I understand. We would stand up for this. It's not appropriate to treat people this way. Jesus is making a different point going vertical, just so you know. Labor unions, we go, no, I don't think so. You need to have 15 minutes break every few hours of work. You need to get paid overtime if you work more than eight hours in a day. They'd be out picketing and lobbying and going on strike. That's what these folks would be doing. That's how Americans would handle what we are reading here. But it was not so in Jesus's day. The disciples knew the answer to his question. Would 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 the master tell him to, uh, you know, sit down at the table and I'll get food for you? No, he wouldn't. The man out in the field would be expected to serve the meal and 
It would be a part of his job. And only after the master's eaten would he eat. And even then, and here's an important thing to realize, even then the servant would not sit at the same table with the master. There would be no fellowship along those lines. In fact, um, Chris Keener's brother, renowned New Testament scholar Craig Keener, in his Bible background commentary notes, it was not considered honorable for masters to eat with their slaves, and it was virtually never done. So there was no question the answers to these uh, sort of things that Jesus are asking here. The disciples understood. No, of course. Of course the servant would come in and still be serving. And of course, after the master and all of his needs have been taken care of, then maybe the servant would get to take care of some of his own. But never would they sit together and never would the master serve him and never would. Right. So does the servant deserve his master's service? The answer to that question is no. No. Question number two, then, that I think comes out now in verse nine. Does the servant deserve his master's praise? Does the servant deserve the master's service? No. Does the servant deserve the master's praise? The answer also we'll find is quite clear. Verse nine, Jesus goes on to ask that another question. Does he, the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Does he say, well done, I'm so grateful that you did what was your job. Jesus this time doesn't signal towards his answer, but he doesn't have to. It's clear. The answer is no. It was his duty. It was his job. He has only done what was expected. Now, if you have kids, I should try to help you understand how this might work. Um, in our context, uh, I think you've probably experienced something like this, right? Like we wrestle all the time with, we, we want to give our kids say a positive affirmation or even rewards and other things, right? You do, you know, certain chores or responsibilities and stuff and you go, yes, awesome. Here's a marble. Here's a sticker. And as you get older, perhaps here's some money. It's your allowance, whatever. Right. But then, you know, uh, you know that there's something off when those kids, uh, kind of maybe they pick up their socks or they fold their towels or whatever it may be. And then they come, and the first thing they want, they, they, they got this, just like that. Where's my, where's my praise? Where's my reward? Where's my sticker? Where's my whatever? And that you, we can kind of feel there's something off in that. Like we want a reward, we want to affirm, but at the same time, we want our kids to do these things because it's what responsible members of a family do. It's what love really looks like. All that that really is, is we just turns you into little mercenaries who are willing to serve for gain. Give me something, you know, and if you don't get the gain, then you don't see the benefit in doing it. And I'm saying, no, I mean, you will serve because you are a Weber. And you are in our house and this is, we all live in this space. So you will clean up your socks. And if I decide to say, thank you very much, let's go out to dinner for doing such a good job, then I can do that. But if I want to say, well, you just did your duty, go to your room, <laughs> you know, then I could say that too. Right. And so <laughs> I did, you know, I anticipate amens or hallelujahs. I'm like, this would be a great spot that I didn't realize would happen right there. <laughs> That's awesome. But you know what I'm saying? This is kind of the, the stuff I think that Jesus is, is driving at here where, uh, listen, he wants us to serve and work for him, not just because it gets us some payoff, but because it is what we've been created and called by God to do. And that's enough. 
And that's enough. But let me, let me continue because uh, we haven't gotten to verse 10 yet. The point of this parable, it seems to me, is to move the disciples and us towards the confession that comes out there in verse 10. So this is when Jesus moves us kind of from metaphor to meaning. In other words, I'm telling you these stories about masters and servants. Here's the point. This is where he's going. And that's what's kind of uh, signaled at when he says, so you also. That's the link. So you. Okay, here's the point for you. So you also. Verse 10. When you have done all that you were commanded say we are unworthy servants we have only done what was our duty here he takes the horizontal image relationships here and he blows it up vertically and he says when you have done all that's been commanded just say i am an unworthy servant that's it put a period at the end of that sentence there's no ethos of entitlement there's no what's up where's my payback just unworthy servant now, I want to take I want to take that uh, kind of self-identification phrase there, uh, that humble understanding uh, of ourselves there. And I want to break it into two. I want to look at those pieces bit by bit. Unworthy servant. I want to start with that second piece, though. I am a servant. Think about this with me. I am a servant. The idea here really is that we belong to God. The idea is that we are his. And when we look at the scriptures and we follow the narrative, we understand that we belong to him in really a twofold sense, for Christians especially. Firstly, we've been created by him. We forget this. (laughs) We forget that we have breath because he gives us breath. (laughs) He created us. We are here because of him by virtue of creation. But secondly, we belong to him because if we are, in fact, in Christ, we have been redeemed by him. Creation and redemption mean you are doubly bought. You are doubly his. You are. I am. A servant. This is why Paul would say things like he does. First Corinthians six nineteen. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. What's the price? Peter tells us later, 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ. That's how you were ransomed. That's how you were redeemed. That's how you were purchased. That's why you're a servant of God. Paul opens every single letter. I am a servant of God. He's not just telling you your servants. He said, I am. This is my identity. Romans 14.7-9. through Listen to this. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But did you hear that? None of us lives to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. None of us dies to ourselves. If we die, we die in the Lord. Our whole lives are his. They are lived out within the sphere of our master. We belong to him. Now, 
Again, I know that cuts right against the grain of this culture and your flesh. I know that that hurts. I mean, this is America, the land of individualism, the land of the self-made man, right? You don't, I don't belong to anyone. Don't tell me I got to belong. I'm a servant. I'm not a servant. This is the land of the free. I make myself what I want to be. And if you get in my way, I'll cut you off. And I go, don't tell me I'm owned by anyone. Right? I am captain of my own soul. Well, Jesus gets in our face in this text and he says, no, you're not. Disciples. I'm an unworthy servant. I'm a servant. He's ripping us from this world of our, you know, kind of self-aggrandizement and all this stuff. And he's bringing us back into the world as it truly is. The world of the scriptures that say you were created and redeemed by Christ. And he upholds you even now. Now, there is that that would be enough to kind of. Okay, Nick, I need to breathe step step back a moment and breathe on this. But there's another word in this self-identification, this confession that Jesus is calling us to make here. It's not just I am a servant. It's also there's an adjective there. I am an unworthy servant. It'd be one thing. It's enough to just be a servant, but I'm not even a good one. (laughs) It's like, no, really? I am an unworthy servant. Servant, the Greek word for unworthy here is difficult, but it seems to mean not yielding gain. It's it's used of that uh, servant in the parable of the talents who doesn't produce anything. Okay, the idea is I don't actually provide any gain to you, God. And I cannot in any way lay claim on you for things. I, I, I can't add to you and I can't put you in my debt. That's, I think, what is meant by this idea of unworthy. Perhaps Romans eleven thirty five thirty six 36 fills it out a little for us. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Answer, no one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Like you don't kind of do some work down here and God goes, Wow. Well, I'm going to have to pay you back for that. You deserve X, Y, and Z. No, the whole point here is I didn't add anything. Whatever I can give back, I probably already smuggled some for myself and just gave you a portion of what you had already given me. Unworthy servant. We like to imagine ourselves as indispensable to God and his cause and his plan. Don't I keep wanting to let the end of the sermon break in because I feel bad, like I'm making you squirm in your seats. But I'm going to stay here with Jesus for a little bit. Hold on. We like to think we're indispensable to his plan, but the bottom line is that we are not. We are not. It is very much the opposite, actually. We, we, we like to think that he can't do much without us, but it's it's precisely uh, counter what we see in the scriptures like. John 15, 5, where Jesus says specifically to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice, he doesn't say, apart from you, I can't do anything. He says, apart from me, you can't do anything. 
at least not fruit bearing anything, at least not meaningful, eternally lasting, important, significant anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Whenever a saint forgets this, whenever a saint loses sight of this and puts himself in the place of indispensability, he is actually readying himself to be disposed of. Let's give you a couple examples. Moses, right? You think of Moses and man, the guy was an amazing dude of faith, but he kind of makes his way through and who wouldn't be frustrated with the Israelites and all the stuff that he faced in the wilderness. But finally, at the end, Moses, God tells Moses, hey, let's bring water from that rock this time. Speak to it. The rock was already struck. Christ was already struck. Speak to the rock. Let the water flow. Moses, so furious, so frustrated that he's like the only faithful one in Israel. Just so mad. Just, I want to put a demonstration of anger. I want to strike this rock. I'm sick of you guys. Self-righteousness. I don't deserve this. You can imagine him feeling, saying, thinking. Strikes the rock instead of speaks to it. Disobeys the father's command. God says, Moses. You're done. You're done. The moment a believer thinks himself to be worthy, to be of much profit, to be somehow indispensable to God is the moment he renders himself more of a liability than anything else. We could talk about Elijah. Elijah did many amazing things. For God and his cause. No doubt about it. We want to know how it ends for Elijah. It's actually quite sad. He's brought off, you know, to Mount Horeb. And there God gives him this vision. And he's like, Elijah, what's wrong? Elijah's running for his life from Jezebel. And he's getting just frustrated. And God kind of comes to him and says, Elijah, what is the problem? What are you doing here? And he cries out, 1 Kings 19.10. I have been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I am left. I'm the last faithful one. I'm the one who's been carrying this torch and going forward and making it happen. I'm the last one that's really, truly jealous for Yahweh. All this, right? And God says, the last one. I've kept 7,000 for myself that haven't bowed a knee to bow. The moment Elijah thought he was the one needed, the one alone was kind of holding it down for God and his cause in the world, is the moment he renders himself done. And from that point, want to know what God says next? Let's talk about, let's talk about uh, Elisha now. Let's talk about your successor. And Elijah is done. The moment the clay hardens against the potter, can't shape it anymore, becomes unusable. But when the clay softens, when the clay recognizes, I'm just an unworthy servant, I'm grateful to be here, whatever you say, I'm here. I'm going to do, even if this doesn't sound good, even if I feel like I'm the only one, even if it's not working out the way I had thought, I'm here. The unworthy servant attitude, the soft clay, he can work with that and make something beautiful. Make something beautiful. 
the goal, I suppose, with this idea of being unworthy is to kind of move us towards the attitude that we see in Paul, the apostle. Do you remember when he's considering his ministry and the gospel and the, the stuff he's seeing happen by way of the spirit and the new covenant? And he stands, he just says, this is amazing. But what does he say when he thinks about it? Does he say, man, well, it just makes logical sense that God would choose me for my eloquence, my strength, my intelligence. That's why all of it. No, he doesn't say any of that. Instead, what he does is who is sufficient? for this I'm not clearly not me clearly this is not because of me I was the chief of sinners that's the identity he remembers and then God just laid a hand on me why I don't know open my eyes why I don't know it's a gift of grace therefore there's humility even as God is doing amazing things through him who is sufficient for this and he answers his own question later 2 Corinthians uh, 3 Four through five, when he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That's what Jesus is striving. We are unworthy servants. We do not belong in the mix of this, even though. He includes us in so much. And this now leads us to where we're going to kind of uh, end, which is the second piece. And if you're worried, I'm going to be done soon. So don't, don't stress what I receive. We just spent a lot of time on what I deserve, because that's really what the text is all about. But think with me now about what I receive, because I think this is what Jesus is wanting to do with us. Um, and, and I'll try to make sense of this. Perhaps as I've been going through this uh, and looking at these verses and talking about some of these uh, countercultural uh, things, uh, as, as you've been kind of listening, perhaps you've thought, man, this just doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. Why, I don't know much about Jesus, but I'm pretty sure he welcomes sinners to the table. And he serves them and he loves them and he commends them and he rewards them and all of this stuff. And you're here telling me he's not doing any of that. At least that's what Jesus seems to be saying. I am so confused. Now, if that's what you're feeling, your intuitions are correct. Your intuitions are correct. There is more to the story than what is right in front of us in this text. In fact... You see, if we read the Gospels carefully, what we find is that all of these things Jesus here says a master would never do for his servants are the very things he himself, as master, will be busy doing for his servants. Did you hear that? Everything he says here that a master would never do, our master is busy doing. In Luke 17, 7, Jesus says a master would never be seen reclining at table with his servants. Wouldn't happen. Craig Keener said virtually never done. Master was slave. No. But all over the Gospels, we see Jesus doing this very thing. With Levi, the tax collector in Luke 5, he's with him around the table. 
The sinful woman, probably a prostitute in Luke 7, he welcomes her at the table. The 5,000 in Luke 9, he feeds them and sits with them there. The tax collectors and sinners, Luke 15. Zacchaeus, Luke 19. Or the Last Supper in Luke 22. He is sitting, we've talked about this throughout Luke's Gospel, he is sitting eating meals with all these folks, all manner of folks. He welcomes, this master welcomes his servants to the table, regardless of their background, pedigree, whatever they bring. Most of the time, it's yuck. He loves to eat with them. And it's all a picture, really, of the last day banquet that's coming for the children of God and the bride of Christ. It's amazing. In Luke 17, 8. Jesus says that a master would never gird himself and serve his own servants. Would he you know, dress himself up already and, and, and serve uh, the guy at table? No, he would not. But in countless texts in the Gospels, we read of Jesus, our master, doing just that. Speaking of the Messianic banquet, Luke 12, 37, listen to this. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress, the master will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That is precisely the opposite of what he says a master would never do in our text this morning. But he says, at the end of the age, in the last day, the faithful servants, I will dress myself for service. Have you sit at table, and I will serve you. John 13, 4 through 5, Jesus rose from supper. This is the last supper now. Again, picturing that end time banquet. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. He's dressing himself for service. Luke 22, verse 27, who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Yes, that's common convention. Yes, that's what we understand. But I am among you as the one who serves. Mark 10:45 fills that out even further. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he takes common convention and just flips it on its head. The master becomes the servant. That's the gospel. Luke 17, 9, Jesus says that a master would never thank a servant. You don't deserve a thanks. You don't. You're just doing your job. And a poor one at that. A master would never thank a servant for simply doing what was commanded. But in 1 Corinthians 5, we read that each one will receive his commendation from God. Commendation, epinos in the Greek, equals praise. What? God is going to praise us. He's going to commend us. He's going to approve and recognize and thank. Or how about Matthew 25, 21? 
Jesus speaks of a faithful servant hearing on the last day from God's own mouth. You remember this? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That sounds like commendation. That sounds like gratitude. That sounds like reward. That sounds. So why? Why all this talk about being unworthy servants and not deserving his company or his service or thanks if he plans to give us all of that anyways? Why all this talk? Why get that drilled into us? The sense that we are unworthy. We don't belong here. We, we, we are yours and, 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 and that's it. Well, I think it's actually quite simple. He never wants us to lose sight of what we truly deserve. So that we are always in awe of what we actually receive. Did you hear that? He never wants us to lose sight of what we truly deserve. So that we're always in awe of what we actually receive. There's a statistic I saw that I think relates to this. Might help you understand it. It said that I think second generation for like wealthy folks. Second generation, 70% of the second generation loses all the first generation's money. And 90% loses it in the third. (laughs) It's all gone by the time you get to the third generation. Why? I think we understand. When you've inherited a lot of money or you're just a kid and this is your normal, what happens? Entitlement happens. You get all this stuff, you just think it's kind of normal to have like... You know, snap your fingers and a little butler comes by with caviar or whatever they do. You know, like this, you didn't have to work for it. You didn't see the work that went into it. You're one step removed. And so you think that this is kind of how like, this is what I deserve. And you kind of get crusty and you kind of get arrogant and you get judgmental and you forget. And this sort of thing can happen in the church where God absolutely, he overwhelms his saints, his children with grace. Unbelievable. What you actually receive is mind-blowing. It's, it's insane. But the problem is, over time, that grace can become ho-hum. It can become expected. It can become, of course he would show this to me because I deserve it. You can start to get that sense of entitlement, that sense of I deserve. And you can grow crusty and judgmental and you come into church to critique rather than to stand in awe that you are numbered among the saints. You see this? And so Jesus, absolutely gracious, pouring out riches and an inheritance you can't even imagine yet. And yet at the same time, wanting to keep us aware in the depths of our being, we don't deserve this. I'm an unworthy servant. I am a sinner. He wants to help that grow in us and it will richer, deeper, so that as you come, as you stand on that last day and and, and you're invited to the table around the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, you're not looking for you know red carpets to roll out like Nick has arrived and the cameras are rolling and everything. No. You are so amazed. Oh, wonder. How is it that I get to sit here? 
That's the sort of thing that Jesus wants us to have in our hearts. Even as he does amazing things through us, even as he, as he pours out an incredible inheritance upon us freely by grace, we never lose the sense, I don't, I don't deserve this. What amazing grace. Let's pray. God, thank you that you in Christ have done more than we can conceive. Washing away our sin, putting it on yourself. If we want to talk about what we deserve, all we have to do is look at the cross. You took what we deserve so we could have what only you deserve. Life with the Father eternal. Satisfaction deep in our souls by the Spirit. An inheritance unfading in the heavens. Welcome around the table. Reward and and approval. These are not our due. These are your gifts of grace to us in Christ. Thank you. And I pray for those in this room right now. Perhaps standing arms crossed, not sure. Feeling like, no, certain things you've done to them, certain trials they've gone through. I'm not sure I deserved that. I'm not sure God is good. God, I pray you'd open eyes in these moments to the wonder of the cross where you took the full brunt of everything we deserve so that you could give us what we could never even conceive of earning ourselves. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son. Thank you for welcoming us around the table. Thank you for for letting us be numbered among the saints. It's in your name we pray. Amen.